this episode on Brittany Phillips, we need to start over completely on this case, in my opinion. We need fresh eyes, fresh ears, even fresh legs on this thing. We need to go back to the community. Law enforcement needs time to re-examine, re-interview, re-investigate, and I believe resubmit evidence. I have now dropped both my son and daughter off at college. Moving them into their first apartment was like a success and a heartbreak at the exact same time. I was so happy for them, but at the same time, I was gonna miss them something terrible. Anything that could make that experience easier, I just lunged toward it. And one of the things that I found comfort in is they were both living with friends since they had known from elementary school or middle school that came from wonderful families, and this helped ease my mind. So in our case today, when the mom leaves her daughter in her first apartment, knowing the apartment is right across the street from her old high school, there has to be comfort in that. Her old school resource officer is right there, just yards away from her front door old teachers and administrators that knew her and cared about her, old coaches that would have helped her in a heartbeat if anything were to happen. You're talking about roughly 50 adults that could have helped her child any minute from about seven in the morning till dinner time when practices were over. She had access to those people to help her. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7. I started my career in the trenches and honey, I've stayed there. For the past 40 years, I've worked every facet of the criminal justice system, police, courts, and corrections. I've worked with law enforcement, victims of crime and criminals to solve complex cases and I have genuinely befriended most of them. I've had the opportunity to work on hundreds of some of the most intriguing cold cases you've heard of and thousands that you haven't. I'm not a first responder. I'm a last responder. Today, we are talking about the murder of beautiful Brittany Phillips. She was killed in her off-campus apartment, and there was no forced entry. So let's start where it ended. This case takes us to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa sits on the Arkansas River, second largest city in Oklahoma. It is part of the Mother Road, honey, Route 66. The population is just over 400,000 people. It's the home of Garth Brooks, Alfre Woodard, Paul Harvey, and others. But on September the 27th, just after 9 p.m., the worst happened. Brittany Phillips in her own apartment. Again, no forced entry. A killer finds her, sexually assaults her, and leaves her on the floor of her bedroom. Now, did he knock on the door and Britt let him in? Was this somebody she knew? Was this a stranger? Or was he already inside the apartment? Because there's one fact about this apartment that is the stuff of horror movies. In her closet, there was a little doorway, a doorway she didn't even notice didn't know anything about. Her mom never even noticed it. 
But that little doorway connected Britt's apartment with other apartments. So somebody in another area of that building could have accessed her apartment. Friends were concerned when she didn't show back up for school or for work. She never missed work. She never missed class. She was an honor student. She was brilliant. Police did a welfare check. And that's when the horrible discovery was made. Brett had no boyfriend. She had no known stalker. There was no drug use. There was no police issues. This was a good kid, a devoted student, a good friend. Family and friends had no idea who would want to harm her. Police did find DNA at the scene, but there were no matches in CODIS. Law enforcement believes it might be somebody that she knew, and that person might have been aware that she lived alone. Just because she didn't know she had a stalker doesn't mean she didn't have one. Brittany had no known enemies. Police had, again, never been to the house for any reason. No drugs, no alcohol, no abusive behavior, nothing, nothing that gave them cause to suspect anyone of hurting her. This case has been cold for 18 years. Brittany was 18 years old. This case has been as cold as she was alive. Let's talk about her circle. She had good friends. She had classmates, a lot of them. She had people that she knew in the apartment, even a handyman, neighbors, past high school connections. Again, all of her teachers and coaches were right across the street. Then there were the known sex offenders in the area. And then they looked for similar transaction. The sheriff, Rigaldo, said at one point he had 276 potential suspects. Let that marinate a minute. 276 suspects in an area of town known to have no problems, no violent crimes, no police issues. Everybody that so far submitted their DNA didn't match anything in CODIS. Nobody popped up. Now, there was one person, they found his DNA in her bedroom and in the kitchen, but he explained it away. He explained why his DNA would be in there. Now, I'm going to get right to our guest. Y'all, this woman is a road warrior. There is no two ways about it. She's Brittany's mama. She's got a Ph.D., She's a hard worker. She's a good friend. But when I tell you she is tireless and fearless, she did something that is so remarkable and just cool that when you hear what she's done to try to find the killer of her child, I think it's going to just make you fall in love with her. So I'm going to welcome Dr. Maggie Zingman. And doctor, welcome to Zone 7. Thank you, Cheryl. It's always great, and it's always invigorating talking to you. Well, let's get right to it. Worst happens, you get a knock at the door. 
I get a knock at the door and I'm 50 miles away from Tulsa in Chandler, Oklahoma. And the knock on the door that I get, which was after my son was notified, was a young sheriff who just has a little piece of paper and he asks me, are you Maggie Zingman? And I say, yes. And he hands me this piece of paper and goes, you need to call Detective Felton. Your daughter's been murdered. And then he leaves. I mean, that was my notification. You know, I found out later my son had been notified because they thought I was still in Tulsa with a chaplain, with two detectives. You know, he was notified in the right way. But mine, it was shocking anyways to hear my daughter was murdered. But to be told in that way was even more unbelievable. It's gut-wrenching. And you had tried to call her a couple of days before. Well, I actually talked to her Monday night. She was at school and she was having problems with her sinuses and trying to get into doctors and she couldn't. And she would always get really upset when things wouldn't go her way. And so I told her I'd meet with her on the weekend like we usually do and find her a doctor to go see. And then I called her. That was Monday night. And then Tuesday night, I called her. Wednesday night, I called her. And I knew she was in classes late those nights. So I thought nothing of it. But Thursday night, I called her and left that typical mom message, Brittany, I know you're okay, but please, please just call me. I know you're fine. And that was probably at like 10 at night. And at 1 a.m. the next morning, which was October 1st, that's when I received that knock on the door. We all know that desperate need. Just let me know you're okay. I think every mom whose child's been away from them for 10 minutes if they're next door playing with neighbors, just let me know you're okay. You know, that's instinctual. I mean, you can't help that. You can't. And then every time that you do that call, you get a call back. You know, oh, sure. you are used to getting those calls back. You don't expect that knock on the door. No. And there's no way to prepare for that. So a lot of times, you know, people will say, oh, you know, the worst thing what in the world would I do? Like, what would you do if this happened? Well, I know what you did, and it is unbelievable. So you go to Parabon, and you get a composite made of the suspect from the DNA the police have. So with phenotyping, you basically have his picture. All right, y'all, Parabon, I'm going to explain my way. I am a crime scene investigator. I'm not a scientist. I collect evidence to send to scientists to tell me what we can get from it. But the Parabon Nano Labs, they do something so extraordinary. They take this nanopharmaceutical and develop DNA from phenotypes. And what that basically means is inside your DNA are all these little phenotype and things running all around. And they inside tell everything about you, your hair color, your eye color, whether or not you have freckles, anything about you physically is in phenotypes inside your body. And that Parabon takes and develops a composite of what the person looks like that left behind this DNA sample. So Parabon literally puts together a composite of what the suspect looks like based on the DNA left behind. You know, he's a white guy with blue eyes and blonde hair and a little bit of freckles. 
And what do you do with that composite? Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting, but I just want to step back for one second real quickly and say that composite was done at year 15 after, like you said earlier, hundreds and hundreds. There was Jeff Felton, then there was Vic, and then there was Eddie Majors. But we had ruled out almost a thousand suspects. And finally, through me pushing for funding and getting some funding for it to be sent to Parabon, that's where we finally, in year 16 and 17, got the phenotype sketch. And I had already wrapped three different cars that I travel across the country in. And so this time I took his picture and I put it on my hood of my car. I didn't want it on the side because I didn't want to look at his face, but I wanted other people to look at his face. So it, it was on the hood of my car. When I went to hotels, people would be on balconies. People would come up to the car. And so that also got us a lot of tips. Okay, I just want to be sure people understand what you just said. Y'all, she took that composite of the person she believed killed her daughter and slapped it on the hood of the car and drove, drove to the grocery store, drove to the bank, drove wherever she needed to go during the day. But then she put together a road trip where she went across the United States and back. She logged over 300,000 miles. Now, I was lucky enough to sit shotgun while she came through Georgia. When I tell you the attention she got from this car, the people that would, at a stoplight, give a thumbs up or take a picture of the car, when we would stop to talk to people, they would come up, they would want to hear the whole story. And what struck me, again, as a mama myself, you were champion for your child one person at a time. You would stop and talk to one person for 30 minutes. I saw you do it. You came to my police department and talked to everybody in CID. You and I even went to some private homes and talked to people so that you could get the word out. And then you would leave the next day and go to another state. I mean, it was a remarkable thing to see that sort of drive, that sort of just, I'm going to, you know, take this on the road because I don't know where he's at. But whether he's on a highway or a back road or a dirt road, that's where I'm going. Really, in 2007, when I started, it was only for our story and stuff. But by about 2015, because I met so many other homicide families, and mo most aren't as crazy as me, you know. <laughs> They're not driving 300,000 miles alone by themselves. And so I really started focusing on every city where I was doing a story asking homicide survivor families to connect with me because so many, I mean, I've met thousands who don't have a voice and that's a problem. Sometimes it seems like the cold cases get the least coverage because the missing and unidentified, you know, these are still stories that could be solved either way. So, you know, there is a sort of urgent need to solve them, but these are urgent too because our killers, if they're not dead, they're killing and raping still. Absolutely. A hundred percent. All right. So you're hitting the road. You're meeting people. How does this help bolster your case? Like what does your local law enforcement think about your caravan of justice? Well, it depends which ones you're talking about. Um, for the first 10 years of my case, Jeff Felt and my detective 
was so unbelievable. He was my champion. He would allow me into getting some information of where they were because he would tell me. And I always try to talk with criminal justice people. And I say, tell people what you can and tell them why you can't, you know? And he would say, well, I can't share this with you, or I'm going to share it with you. But if it is shared with media, you know, it could hurt our story. So I really learned a lot about criminal justice through that. And so he and Mike Huff, who was head of homicide, they were my champions. Every new car, because I'm on my fourth car now that's been wrapped, every car that I got wrapped, Mike Huff, the head of homicide, would uh, be there. And Mike used to say, if we solve this case, Maggie, it's going to be because of you, because you're out there. That changed with this third detective. Vic Regalado was only my detective for one year. I didn't know he was going to become head sheriff, which now he's there, you know, helping out as much as he can. But after that, there was blockage to using cold case groups. There was a lack of information shared. And even though he's retired, that is pretty much, I really feel TPD, even though I've done nothing to break their trust, they've become very untrusting. And they also don't have the resources. Every city that I've gone to has has formed, like you all, cold case groups. You know, they don't just put one person into the second major city of Oklahoma over cold cases. I mean, it's ridiculous. And the thing is, if, if they would reach out, there are resources out there that would be willingly given to them at no cost. In the decades since Brittany's murder, technology has advanced just ridiculously. Ridiculously. So you think if we could go back in time and at her crime scene have what we have today, we would have had access to Francine Bardot and the Bardot method, MVAT and Jared Bradley working it. We would have had CC Moore immediately helping with the ancestry connections. We would have had folks like Dr. David Middleman and Othram that almost in real time, can tell you who the DNA belongs to. We wouldn't have wasted years and decades testing and experts and flying people, you know, back and forth. It wouldn't cost them a dime if they would just reach out to these people that are more than willing to help out. And they're saying that they are, but so far, uh, from what people are telling me, I don't know, this maybe is my assumption, but dragging their feet on allowing it. So, you know, we're meeting more and more because, like you said, 18 years alive, 18 years of cold case. This anniversary on October 4th, because we buried her on her 19th birthday, it just broke my heart because every story I did, I was saying she was alive 18 years. We buried her on her 19th birthday. And now it's been a cold case for 18 years. Although, the first 10 years, they never really called it cold because Jeff kept turning over every single suspect. And I also wanted to just add something here. When we discovered that DNA belonged to, you know, someone who they said wasn't her killer, that was after using it until 2019 to compare against suspects, every single suspect. That profile was used to, you know, say most likely this isn't our killer because their DNA isn't matching. So what I've fought with since 2019 is getting Tulsa police to go back over 
a lot of those suspects. We had some great, very bizarre ones that, you know, Jeff would go, I'm so surprised this DNA doesn't match. So you drive around with this guy's picture on your car. We all take pictures of your hood. We all share it. And then they call you and they say, it's not him. After all those miles and all those years, it's not him. I got the call. I was on, I think, my 20th caravan, and I was in Yakoma, Washington. And I got the call, and when, and I knew that they possibly had a hit, but I didn't know exactly. And when I got a call from him, and it said, uh, from Detective Majors, and he said, we got a direct hit. And he's not our killer. I felt almost the same exact way that I did when I got that notice that she had been murdered. You know, it was like, oh, my God, that means we're back to ground zero. How can I? And one of the things I said to him and I said to everybody else during that whole month long of torture while we were explaining to people what happened, I said, I can't. I'm not going to live another 19 years. I don't think I'll be alive to solve this. And that's how I felt. And I was told that there was a, a good alibi, airtight. So Mr. X left seminal DNA in Brittany's bedroom and blood evidence in the kitchen. And he explained that, hey, sometimes my girlfriend and I would use Brittany's apartment for a little tryst and, you know, Possibly I got hurt once, whatever. And that was it. They accepted it and moved on. When you and I talked, one of the things that we agreed on is if that is true, then there should be vaginal fluid from another female, not Brittany, on that same piece of evidence. And if that's not the case, then we have an issue that needs to be cleared up. And each meeting that I've had, a meeting I had in February and one later, um, I was told they were going to analyze it. Of course, since they don't share anything with me, I don't know if they had. But I know both you and your cold case group. And I know Sheriff Regalado and his cold case group, which also includes FBI agents. I mean, it includes a lot of retired experts. I know those are the questions you'd ask. And the feeling I get when I ask these questions, oh, and it's like, uh, you can't see this, but a little pat on the shoulder. Oh, you're just a homicide mother. It's okay. You don't understand this stuff. I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe some don't, but I've been educated by some of the best, like you, like Jeff, like Vic. So I do understand that. Along with that, you know, there's stuff that in 2004, we didn't have the ability to analyze DNA the way we do now. Absolutely. We have such gift nowadays with Francine Bardol and Jared Bradley and Orthram. Are you kidding me? It's a whole different world today. Oh, yeah. There's touch DNA. There's the MVAC, you know, and I had a meeting and I asked them, are you using these things, you know, and stuff. And I, I was told they were. But, you know, again, everywhere I travel, and that's 300,000 miles, and that's probably third, 300 cities and probably at least 200 police departments I've talked to. Every single one of them says, hell yeah, we 
have asked this cold case group to come in or, yeah, hey, we got funding to develop our own nonprofit cold case group from all the experts. And when I first was asking Eddie Majors about this way back in the early years of him doing this, every time I asked him until the year he retired, I kept saying, he goes, well, you know, we have such great detectives here. I said, it's not about great detectives or anything. It's on old cases, having a fresh set of eyes. You know what? They might prove that you've done everything that is possible. Or they might be able to see some corners that you couldn't see around. It's about wanting help to solve these cases. And on the front line, I'm always told, you know, we're we're dedicated, you know, and you shouldn't feel this way. You know, how almost in some meetings I've had, it's like, how dare you feel like we're not working the case? How dare you ask for cold case investigators? You know, it's ridiculous. I'm tired, you know, and you know me. Uh, in earlier interviews, I've, you know, I've, I've been good, you know, and with Jeff, I applauded TPD. You know, I had no reason to complain, um, but this is ridiculous. Well, the, here's the bottom line. I believe they're dedicated. I know they're good, but that doesn't mean you don't need some help. Exactly. I mean, I was a dedicated, good parent, but honey, I needed help a lot. <laughs> and that doesn't. Me too. Me yeah. Too. And that that's not a negative thing. I mean, I've got four sisters that absolutely helped raise my children. There's nothing negative with that. If anything, it made my children more incredible people, period, bottom line. So ask for help. And even if you don't ask it, if it's offered, freaking take it. it it's important to get that, you know, fresh set of eyes and to, and to learn about these new people and these new tools that maybe you don't know. And people ask me all the time, hey, do you know so-and-so that's a medical examiner? Or do you know so-and-so, a homicide detective? Just because I've never heard of them, don't and that doesn't mean they're not fabulous. It just means I haven't heard of them yet. But tell me about them. Now I know. Now they can go in my Rolodex. Happy day. It's all good. All right, let's walk through the crime, step by step. Like I said, I called her at 9, 9 p.m. was probably when I talked to her on the 27th. So what they told me, and I met Jeff the next morning. I drove down there by myself and you know, her body had already been taken away. They identified it by the license, which upset me. But Jeff was there relatively soon. And what he initially told me was that sometime between 9 p.m. the 27th and 8 a.m. the 28th, which would have been the Tuesday morning, that she was raped and suffocated and that she probably died immediately that they didn't find any ligature marks on her, but I remember them telling me that possibly there were some very faint thumbprints. And the fact was, is that she was dead for three days. That friend who, you know, had them do a wellness check, that was after she didn't show up at school on Wednesday, Thursday, she came there. And that's when she called the Tulsa police. So I don't know a lot about dead bodies, but, you know, because of the swelling, because of all that. And then she was also found beside her bed on the floor. Normally her pillow would be up near the wall. And so she would be lying with her head near the wall. She was beside the bed on the side with her head in the opposite direction on her back. And I remember the detective telling me it seemed like 
possibly somebody had placed her clothes back on or made it look like she had just fallen out of bed and she had her t-shirt and underwear on. And so they also, when I came there, because the, they had already done the crime scene investigation, there is a lot of that spray or whatever on the walls. They really do feel she put up a fight, which breaks my heart. But they also said that she died, they think, from something collapsing in her neck that happens with some wrestlers that pressure's put on the neck. So that's what I was told then, you know. And that's also, you mentioned this earlier, that's when Jeff, who was, I still think he is, six foot three, six foot four, went into the closet and he said, are you aware of this? And he pointed up to the ceiling and there was maybe a three foot square piece of wood up in the ceiling, which was access to the attic. And he moved it and showed that he could pull himself up. And he was a pretty big guy, you know, not just tall, but also not emaciated or anything. And he could have pulled it. So yes, all four of the upstairs apartments had attic access to and so they all joined kind of in the middle. Like if you think of the middle of the wheel, you could go to either of the apartments from that center. That's the thing of a horror movie. It is. It is. Just the idea, whether it's a handyman, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's somebody that used to work there or used to live there. Laying cable, laying telephone. Bug guy. You know, and were they up there observing her before that? I mean, I know they searched up there. I don't think they found anything, but, you know, you just, if it was a stalker, how long was he up there? You know, and there's another thing, too, is that, gosh, I think before she went away, because she went down to Texas to visit a friend, and that's a whole nother thing about the case, but she went down to visit a friend in Texas, and then she was killed about less than a month when she got back, because that was in August. Before that, she had said that she came home and she found urine in the toilet, and she didn't remember doing that, and there was no toilet paper. Yeah, but... Again, didn't think anything really about it. Tell me how many interviews you think you've done with media. Well, Tulsa Media, Channel 6, especially Laurie Fulbright, uh, Channel 2, and Channel 6 and Fox 23 have followed me religiously, even though I've retired a number of reporters. But between them and all my travels, at least 300 on the road and probably another 100 um, here. I'm very lucky that Tulsa still follows us and everything. And sometimes, especially with Channel 6, we've shared information that TPD did not share. And one of the major things is, and this is still causing problems, is when I got back to Tulsa after I was informed about the DNA not matching the reason we knew it didn't match was because C.C. Moore analyzed it and found the direct hit to the owner. That's the same DNA that the picture was made from. When Tulsa police announced it, they announced it as DNA was used to create a picture and a tip came in from the picture and that individual was ruled out. So tell me. What's the difference? I mean, I know you know. What's the difference between saying a tip came in and we ruled out this individual versus 
we had a direct hit to the DNA. We identified the owner of that DNA, that blood sample, that semen, that DNA, which said he was Caucasian, which said he looked like this. That DNA, if we're saying it's not our killer, is no longer viable. So a lot of people were still thinking he was, you know, and he, he may well be, but it started still restricting our pool of tips because they were still thinking he's Caucasian, he's mid-20s. They weren't thinking that he could be Asian, African-American, Polynesian, whatever, you know. And so I, with Laurie Fulbright, broke the news that, you know, it was the DNA because it's so important. And I still get people who go, oh, so a tip came in and it wasn't the killer. It's so different. I mean, you know that. I was utterly gobsmacked by the whole thing. I mean, I was so knocked out. I mean, I, I talked to you that day and I'm like, Maggie, how in the world? And the other thing that crossed my mind is, how does this guy watch you drive 100,000 miles, 200,000 miles, 300,000 miles, year after year after year, and he don't say, hey, the hood of your car looks like me, but I didn't do it. I've already got an alibi. He don't say a word. He lets you drive all over creation. Never says a word. Yeah, I go both ways. Part of me says, you know, back in 2004, I didn't understand DNA. And what I was told by some people back then um, who were aware of it, him and her back then, said they all thought that the DNA was found inside of Brittany. And it wasn't. And so I understand that a little bit. But the fact is, is we just need to have everything we looked at again. We need to be understanding that the possible killer could be of any culture, of anywhere. Maggie, let's talk about the suspects in this case. They looked at friends, neighbors, local criminals, still nobody. They still have no clue. And all these people they looked at, they compared that DNA profile. And I don't fault them in those early years. Blood and semen from the same person? Even a non-detective, I would think that's a killer. So I don't fault that. And in those first 10 years, that's where the thousands of suspects came. So law enforcement got the DNA and they connected it to a young man that had access to Brittany's apartment that sometimes would use her apartment and her bedroom supposedly to have a sexual tryst with his girlfriend. This explained why his DNA would be on her sheets or bedspread. I feel very differently about that. Resubmit evidence, start over, look harder. Because not only did this young man have seminal fluid present, he had blood evidence present in the sink. I would start over. Nobody's off the table if we don't have a suspect. There were relatives of people who lived in the apartment that we found out had some sexual crimes, you know, which if we find out that's one of the individuals, that apartment complex is going to find a very large lawsuit because 
they've let a lot of people be at risk there. They never told people that Brittany was murdered there. And I would tell families and people moving in. We had some suspects that were pretending to be part of the investigation that we ruled out through the DNA. We had some people who were violent. You know, we had some old boyfriends that Brittany had some issues with, all ruled out through the DNA. The thing is, if this young man is truly not our killer, we need to be looking at every single one of those suspects again. And when I say that to the current detective and the one before him, Eddie, I'm told, well, you know, all the other DNA was up in CODIS. And now I think that they were interviewed. They've already been ruled out. The DNA we used is possibly not the killer. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. There's even an individual, you know, my daughter, what I found out, God, like eight years after her murder, is that part of the reason I didn't know this, she went down to Texas. It's a big beach down in southern Texas. Galveston? No, it's below Galveston. I can hear it in the back of my head. Anyway, she went down to southern Texas. A friend of hers that she went to school with that I knew very well was living down there. What I didn't know is that her friend had been assaulted and she and one her classmate, actually, who I think was the one who did the wellness check on her, went down there to support the friend. And about 10 years after the murder, her friend called me and said, do you know why Brittany came down here and that it had been a boyfriend of the friend's? that assaulted her and raped her. And so, you know, I gave the police his name. I don't remember it anymore because we didn't know if because Brittany was down there helping her and, and telling him to stay away, he could have followed her back. You know, these are all these really good suspects that were ruled out with the DNA. And, and again, if we're right that this young man is not her killer, all these suspects need to be looked at. And that's why... A group like yours, Vic's cold case group, let them look at it. You know, let them look at these suspects again. And even Jeff, sometime, I mean, uh, he still stays in touch. And he said, you know, I wish I was a little bit more old school. I wish I hadn't fully focused on that DNA. And he, he lived that case. He still lives the case. He's an encyclopedia. And the, the current detectives only briefly talks to him every now and then. Well, you know my mantra, every tool on every case, every time. That's it. You don't pick and choose, or oh, we're going to polygraph on this one, and we're going to, you know, do orthrum on this one. No, every time, everything you got, full court press, period. I think everybody needs to be re-interviewed. I think the evidence needs to be retested. I think they need to go back, ground zero, walk it again, do it again. Well, there's a good story, even in C.C. Moore analyzing this DNA and not finding the killer. The one good point that I use about CC is that, you know, when I have traveled across country, because along with trying to solve a murder, I've been an advocate for DNA at arrest, which we took me nine years to get it passed here in Oklahoma. But people go, oh, well, they can just take that DNA and put it somewhere and falsely convict somebody. And so now I can go, hey, guess what? Our case we had a direct hit to the DNA, and because there was no more evidence, we couldn't convict. That's a really important fact, you know, to argue. Tulsa police, Eddie Majors, would not let media talk to C.C. Moore. And because they were contracted 
And with Parabon, she couldn't, you know, and that was, we were going to even do the story nationally, but they wouldn't allow it. Why don't you tell everybody about what happened to you between Montana and Wyoming? Talk about off the beaten path. Well, you know, uh, Cheryl, along with many other people, admire greatly what I do, but they also think I'm a little bit crazy, (laughs) you know, because since 2007, I've traveled 300,000 miles through 48 states, all self-funded, and it's been about 22 tours. For the first 10 years, even though I know there was GPS, I didn't use GPS, <laughs> you know. I used, if people are familiar, those big foot, big atlases. And so I would just find a route. Well, I was traveling, I forget what year, 2012, between Wyoming and Montana. And back then I would drive, you know, 10 hours if it took me to get to a city. So I started off in the day in Wyoming on this seemingly okay road. I mean, it was too late, but it seemed okay. As it got darker and darker, all of a sudden I started seeing free roam animals. Beware. So for the next four hours, I'm driving in the dark back on some country road of Wyoming, and I'm just waiting for a buffalo or a cow or a chicken. And luckily nothing came out, but every five miles you go, Beware, free roam animals or free range animals. You know, I mean, you know, those were things that I, you know, took a big chance with. I mean, I have a number of stories like that, but that one was just crazy. And so finally, after a couple of years, I started using GPS and staying on, you know, because part of the thing was, especially on those backcountry roads. I mean, half the reason I've had four cars wrapped with pictures of her and caravan to catch a killer on the sides is so that people can see the car because just from seeing caravan, they search me out. On a backcountry road in the middle of the night with free roaming animals, nobody sees the car. That's right. Well, you and I have talked a lot, and I know you have said you're not stopping even if they take your driver's license. So I'm just telling you, I will one day go on Facebook and see you head down the road in your motorized wheelchair. (laughs) (laughs) Probably speeding, you know. Probably speeding. Even though it might take me five hours to go 10 miles. Hopefully, I will do this until I can't drive anymore. I'm getting older. I really want to do this more. And, I, you know, back in the first uh, 15 years, really, of doing this, um, or probably first 12. Uh, I really had no money. I would live without heat in my house. I would live without food. I would live when my water heater broke. I didn't replace it for years. I would borrow on my cars, which were falling apart, um, just so I could do at least two caravans every year. You know, I mean, I lived without a lot uh, because I worked for the state and I didn't have a great income. And so now I really can afford to do it more. So I'm trying, although I'm a trauma psychologist. I work with veterans. God bless them today. I'd like to sort of slow down a little bit and work or do it as I travel and just get out there because I'm going to be 68 next February. I can't believe I've been doing this for 16 of the 18 years that she's been dead. Well, I appreciate you and I just am so thankful you're here to talk to us today. And I am going to just pray that year 19 is the year. Ever since I met you, 
you've been such a bright light in my life and you know you have a place in my heart. So I couldn't do it without you. In my opinion, law enforcement needs to re-interview every single one of Brittany's friends. Who had access to her apartment? Who had an extra key? Did she have a spare key hidden somewhere that a few people knew about? Some of these friends are now parents themselves. Help Maggie with answers. Even if you don't think it's something significant, law enforcement might. Let's help law enforcement by spreading the word to encourage witnesses to come forward. The phone number for the Tulsa PD is 918-596-9135. I'm going to end Zone 7 the way I always do with a quote from a friend, and this comes from Dr. Christine Middleman. And she says, work on things that keep you up at night. Be the change every single day. Never give up and know that one day your work will be the answer in the change in someone else's life. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7.